0: Well, hi there, and thanks so much for joining us here at Timberline Church. It's great to be able to connect with you in this way. We are continuing this series, Who Do We Think We Are? And we are looking at a letter in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote an epistle, that's another word for a letter, to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. He addresses so many different issues, but we're going to zero in here On Ephesians chapter 2. Now, let me just say that uh, it's impossible for us to kind of zero in and do a word by word investigation into this letter. And bear in mind, when the Apostle Paul wrote it, he intended it to be read publicly to the gathered Christians. What we're doing is an overview, but during today's message, as we think about being a new creation people, we are going to have a look at the whole of Ephesians chapter 2. So let's kick off and look at the first few verses where Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Looking back over what's happened in the church globally over the last three or four decades, I've noticed that things have changed and sometimes they've very much changed for the better. So when I became a Christian, we used to have something on Sunday mornings called open worship. Now, Open worship meant that we would have a period, a season of uh, time when before taking communion together, we would have a time of singing. But here's the thing, we weren't led by a worship group. Anybody in the congregation could just launch into a song and we would try to follow on. Now, most of the time, this was really good. And frankly, sometimes it was utterly horrifying because if someone pitched a song at a really high key, Everybody would try to follow on, and what would would happen is that we would have a time of corporate shrieking, which probably meant that angels were covering their ears. And then sometimes, occasionally, someone would launch into a song thinking that it was a Christian song, but actually it wasn't. And there's a story told, I believe it to be true, of someone who during a time of open worship launched into, he'll be coming round the mountain when he comes. Helpfully, I think before they got to that bit where they were singing, "I I yippee, yippee, I," the song discontinued at that point. I'm glad actually that we don't have those times of open worship anymore. And let me just say this, there were a lot of tambourines back then. Now, I'm not against the tambourine, it's a biblical instrument, but it is helpful if the person who is playing it has actually got some sense of timing. There is nothing worse than someone headbutting a tambourine during the worship and it's completely out of uh, time. Another thing we used to do a lot of was testimonies where we uh, someone would stand up and they would share their story, and actually many of these occasions were very, very beautiful. But I do remember as well, sometimes we would feel a little envious of the really spectacular testimonies. And those people who grew up in a test, in a Christian home were, were a little bit jealous of those who, who lived a life of lurid crime only to find Jesus. And occasionally that led to a bit of silliness, like the person who stood up and said, yes, I lived a life of sin, depravity, indulgence, and debauchery. And then I became a Christian at the age of four. Right. What's happening here in this passage is that Paul is looking back to what we were before we found Christ. He's doing some of that looking back, but he's doing so much more. So let's dive in and take a closer look. First of all, let's look back at the way we were. And Paul says that we were dead. I mean, that's kind of blunt, isn't it? Dead. As for you, verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I'm not sure what it was that caused me to think this way. It happened relatively recently. I think it might have been the result of me watching some Christians arguing about some minor point of doctrine on Facebook. And then I heard about a church dividing somewhere. And then I heard about a Christian leader who fell into a pattern of immorality. And then I got a kind of mean email from somebody. Of course, not anybody in Timberline. You wouldn't do that, would you? But uh, there was an accumulation of different negative things that had happened. And um, stand by to be a bit shocked. But just for a moment, I thought to myself, I wonder what my life would have been like if I'd never become a Christian back then when I was 17. I mean, in that moment, I thought, well, I, I wouldn't have had to have been worried or anxious about sin or temptation. Maybe my life would have been carefree if I hadn't decided to follow Jesus. Now, now, don't be too shocked about that, because the Bible is full of commands and encouragements to us to keep going. And, and, and Galatians tells us that we shouldn't be weary in well-doing. And the Apostle Paul, again, writes to the Corinthians And he tells them to run the race to win. He talks about himself finishing the Christian journey. Now a crown is laid up for me. In other words, the Bible acknowledges that there may be times when, frankly, we want to just give up. But what we see here, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's telling them to look back at what they've turned away from, what they've left behind And basically he says, you were dead. And there's nothing more dead than a dead body to state the screamingly obvious. It is unable to respond, left alone, it will only putrefy. The only thing we can do is dispose of it. And the Apostle Paul is saying to the Ephesians, spiritually you were dead, you were corpses. And he really adds to this kind of thinking when he says we were were disobedient. And he uses two words there, the word trespass, which means a false step, crossing a boundary or taking a deviation from a path. And then he talks about sin, the Greek word hamartia, which means missing the mark, falling short of a standard. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, in your past, you were dead, And you were messing up in the things that you did do, and you were messing up in the things that you failed to do. And if that's not enough, he says we were all being influenced by the ruler of the power of the air. This is a way of referring to Satan. Have you ever heard someone say that there's something in the air, something that we detect perhaps when we go into a room full of certain people or or into a city, or into a a store. And the Apostle Paul is using this language to talk about the influence that's in the air, if you will, of the enemy. And he's saying, you were under that influence. Here's the thing. When we attempted to perhaps give up, let's never forget where we've come from. The Apostle Paul in his own life, he refuses to, to celebrate his previous religious credentials as a Pharisee and and as a Jew, but he never forgets his own horrible history. He never forgets where he came from. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And then he says to the Corinthians, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Remember, it was Paul when his name was Saul who was an agent of extreme persecution for the early church prior to his conversion to Christ. He caused great suffering and he never forgets what he was. As he does this, He drives a truck through human pride. Now, let's face it, being human is beautiful. The Bible teaches us that we've been made in the image of God. Imago Dei is the way the uh, theologians describe it. But that that humanity has been messed up by the fall. And when we humans attempted to be self-sufficient and arrogant, and talk about the ascent of humanity, how sophisticated we are. When we indulge ourselves in what C.S. Lewis describes as chronological snobbery, let's remember what we've come from. And maybe you're not a follower of Jesus today. You know, one of the first steps is to actually admit our need of God. And Paul really wraps it all up here with words like dead and trespasses and sins disobedience. But he doesn't stop there. And I'm glad about that, aren't you? Because there is news. Let's look, secondly, up and see who God is, his love and grace. Because Paul goes on to say, but I'm so glad that there is this word but here, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Paul talks about how terrible things were in our history, but then he says, but God, and this love of God, this grace of God has now raised us up and we are now seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? We're not in heaven right now, are we? No, but Paul is saying we, we have a seat at the banqueting table of God, at a place of honor, more about that in a moment, in a place of authority. You see, here's the thing. Peace does not come from us denying our sinfulness. Peace comes when we own up to it, but then celebrate and receive the grace of God. Remember, Some of those things that Paul said about himself. There's a pattern here I'd like us all to see. He says, I was a persecutor and a violent man. But he doesn't stop there. He immediately says, and the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Sin and grace. Look at it again in 1 Timothy 1.16. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Sin. But then immediately he talks about grace. For that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense power as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. There's another example in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's really see this principle. He says, I persecuted the church of God and immediately says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. We don't find peace by minimizing our sin, saying it doesn't matter. We find peace by acknowledging it and then acknowledging the grace of God. That can be difficult for us. Too many of us as Christians are shame addicts. It was the reformer Martin Luther who said, most Christians have enough religion to feel guilty about their sins, but not enough to enjoy life in the spirit. We are seated in heavenly places, this place of honor at the table of God. Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. In the Bible, the right hand is the place of honor. Repeatedly throughout scripture, particularly in the Psalms, we read about being at God's right hand. It means a place of honor, the place of honor at his table. Some years ago in California, I was preaching on the right hand of God's favor. And I hadn't shared the theme of my message with anybody on the leadership team. Nobody in the church knew what I was about to share. Just as I got up to speak, Linda Abercrombie, one of the pastoral team there, she wandered over to where I was sitting on the front row and just said, Jeff, would you please hold out your right hand? She had some anointing oil and just quietly poured that oil on my right hand. Two minutes later, I got up to preach on the right hand of God's favor with my own right hand dripping with oil. It was as if God was shouting at me, Jeff, don't you know, I don't want you to just preach about grace. Preach about my favor. I want you to experience it. And we need to know that when we feel shame. It was Chuck Swindoll who said, most folks, it seems are better acquainted with their guilt and shame than they are with their God. And Paul celebrates the grace of God and talks about how in the future we will continue to celebrate that. Ephesians 2, 7, in the future, he will show us the incomparable riches of his grace. You see, heaven's not going to just be about us floating around on clouds with a few low-flying angels and playing electric harps. Heaven is going to be about us discovering the grace of God. And because it's so vast, it really will take forever. If you are burdened down by shame, why not allow God to lift that today? Guilt can be a good thing. It's good to feel guilty when we are. But God, although he might convict us with guilt, he never smothers us with shame and one way forward as we see from Paul's words here is that we own up to our sin but we don't stop there we then celebrate grace thirdly let's look within at ourselves and what we are now we are God's workmanship Ephesians two ten. for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do this is a remarkable word handiwork here. Uh, Two things about it. It's only found one other time in the Bible, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, where it talks about creation. Remember in Genesis, God looked at what he had made and said, it is good. Well, here, Paul is saying God looks at us and we are his handiwork. He declares that what he has made in us is good. And the word here is the word "piomi." from which we get our word poetry. I really like that. We are God's poetry. It speaks of our uniqueness. It speaks of the fact that there is no one ever quite like us. And just as God made something stunning in creation, so we too are his workmanship. You know, in growing up, I, I struggled with a sense of self-worth I have a younger brother. He's eight years older than me. And according to him, he's better looking than me, which isn't hard. And I remember one time him coming home with his girlfriend and my mum said, my brother's name is Terry. My mum says, wow, don't you think that Jeffrey looks quite like Terry? This was a remark offered to the girlfriend. And the girlfriend looked at me with a, a bit of a sniffy disdain and said, he doesn't look anything like Terry. And I can still remember shrinking in that moment. Do you remember that moment when they were picking players for that game, that sports game at school? We'll take him, we'll take him, we'll take him, and we'll take him. And you're standing there feeling like, please, somebody just pick me. The Bible teaches us here that we are God's workmanship. We don't have to be like somebody else. We don't have to have the gifts that somebody else has, but each one of us are uniquely crafted and made, and each one of us surely has a contribution that we can share. Fourthly, let's look around at and and see what we're part of together, which is radical Christ-centered community. Let me read a few verses here from Ephesians 2 11 onwards. Paul says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you will You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross." by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, fairly complex words. What are they about? Well, in in the day in which Paul wrote this letter, there was so much racism. When we we think about the tragedy of racism today, we've got to know, haven't we, that this is, a tragic problem, and it's certainly not a new problem. And one of the biggest examples of racism was in the relationship between Jew and Gentile. Uh, The Jews didn't get on too well with the Samaritans either. They hated each other. But um, the gap between Jew and Gentile in, in Bible times was massive. God had called Israel to be a beacon people to the world. Chris Wright says that God called Israel not at the expense of the rest of the world but for the sake of the rest of the world but they'd become separatist and arrogant and proud and so there was a real sense of racism I I, I mean I'm sorry for what I'm about to share but when Paul talks about the Jews calling the Gentiles the uncircumcision I've got to just tell you he's being polite The reality, the truth is that the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as foreskins, which is rude. They would also call them dogs. And there was a real sense of of separation uh, and hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was a sign at the temple in Jerusalem that said, no Gentile may ever enter inside the enclosing screen. Whoever is caught is alone responsible for their death which follows. But now Paul is saying those walls of hostility have come down and now whatever our ethnicity, whatever our background, we are called to be people who share together in the family of God. When you start talking about racism, it can get difficult because we all tend to think that we are not racist. In fact, that was my delusion. Uh, Kay and I, you may know that Kay and I have two foster children. They're all grown up now, uh, but they are from the West Indies. In fact, one of our foster children who who um, has to have dialysis three times a week, she is currently suffering from the COVID uh, virus. And I'd appreciate your prayers for us because she is very vulnerable. But I used to think that because we had two kids of our own, and then, and then two foster kids um, from the West Indies. Surely, I thought, I'm not racist. But then I started to think about my childhood. My dad was incarcerated for four years as a prisoner of war, both in a Germ- first in a German camp and then in an Italian camp. If you're from an Italian background, please don't be offended by what I'm about to say. I love Italy. I love Italian food. I love Italians. My dad didn't. He was treated badly by some guards in that camp. And as a result of that, he developed a generalized stereotypical view about people from Italy. And my dad, I'm sad to tell you, um, in the first couple of years after the war, if he saw somebody who even looked Italian, he would walk across the street and hit them. And I realized recently that I was raised in an atmosphere that racist view was passed on to me. Let's be really careful about racism that can linger deep in our hearts, and we're not even aware of it. And let's model something about the way that we disagree. It's been said that America is so divided at the moment. And in Europe, we've had the whole debacle around Brexit and Uh, And Britain has been divided by that. It was a moment during the COVID crisis when when we applauded our carers standing on our doorsteps every Thursday night to go out there and applaud our medical heroes. And I cried a few times when we did that. And I'm thinking, why am I crying? And I think it was because for one moment, it felt like we were together. And right now, there's so much division in America about money and big government and small government and powerful corporations and small business owners and minimum wage for the poor and small businesses concerned about that and healthcare and sexuality and gender and abortion, including full term abortion. And and you might say, Pastor Jeff, you're meddling when you start talking about this stuff. Oh, no, most of this stuff is talked about in this book, no meddling at all. Actually, this is a very political book. The word politics comes from the word polis, which simply means the matters of the city. That's why we talk about the metropolis. This is a very political book. We are not going to be party political. We are going to speak up thematically on many of these issues as the Lord leads us and as we have to be faithful to his word, knowing that that can be controversial. But when we disagree... Let's model positive disagreement that is respectful. Let's not get into generalizations and name calling. Let's model something different. Well, the last thing is this, and that is that we look at the wonder of belonging. We are a temple being built. Paul ends this chapter by saying, verse 19, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is stunning stuff because the Ephesians had their own temple the temple to Diana or Artemis. And the Jews, of course, had their temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, the second temple, which really was the heart of the nation. It was the place of celebration and feasting. It was the center of political, social, cultural, religious life. But now Paul is saying God is building a new temple, a temple made of people. Now, before I wrap all this up, let me show you something remarkably consistent in Scripture. Because you see, Jesus had prophesied that this incredible temple in Jerusalem, that it was all coming down. Mark 13, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So look at this. Jesus said that temple is coming down. 29 years later, Paul wrote these words about a new temple somewhere around AD 62, he wrote from a prison in Rome. And then eight years after Paul wrote this letter and 37 years after Jesus prophesied it in AD 70, the Romans Totally destroyed The temple in Jerusalem. Josephus, a historian of the day, said it was so thoroughly laid, even with the ground, by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing to make those that came thither believe Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. You see, Jesus was saying, "That temple is coming down." And Paul, even while the temple was still standing. He says, now there's a new temple. It's a temple made of people. And it's a temple that is glorious because the bricks of Jews and Gentiles are people of all ethnicities, of people who would never be together except that they gather around the cross and the empty tomb. Paul is saying, this is the new temple that God is building as a sign and a wonder to planet earth. You know what that says to us? It says that it is a massive privilege to be part of this temple that God is building, this temple of people, God's dwelling within that body. It's a massive privilege to be part of the church, the body of Christ. Let's never treat it lightly or casually because God is building a temple. And hey, here's the news. We who were dead, in trespasses and sins. Now we are being molded together, even in our disagreements, in our various views and perspectives, disagreeing agreeably, knowing that it's a privilege to be together in Christ, knowing the joy that we are his workmanship, that we have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he's prepared for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for this incredibly sobering picture that we see in Ephesians chapter 2, a picture that describes what we were, where we've come from, dead in sin. And yet we also see the wonder of your grace here. And we realize as we read these words that peace and joy doesn't come from denying our sinfulness but rather admitting our need not pretending that our failures and sins aren't important but rather acknowledging them but then not stopping there but accepting your grace Lord for any who right now live heavily burdened by shame lift their heads and their hearts with the news of your grace and then finally Lord As we are being built together in you, people of different backgrounds and views and perspectives, a beautiful building made up of bricks of great variety, may we truly be a sign and a wonder in our divided world, a sign that says that we can exist together in Christ Jesus. Anybody, Lord, who doesn't know you today, may they be prompted to make that choice. To follow you. We give you thanks and praise for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we end our time together today, we're going to share in a responsive piece of liturgy that comes from common worship, which is the prayer book used by the Church of England. Now this might seem a little strange, I know, but there are some parts that I'm going to do and share with you. And then you'll see lettering in bold where we can, you can join me and we will say those words together. I really hope that makes sense. So let's just take a moment to be quiet and still our hearts before the Lord as we've been talking about sin and grace. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Turn back to the Lord who will have mercy, to our God who will richly pardon. Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We are sorry and repent. Have mercy on us according to your love. Wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin renew a right spirit within us and restore to us the joy of your salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. May the Father of all mercies cleanse us from all our sins and restore us in his image to the praise and glory of his name through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Blessed be the Lord who has heard the voice of our prayer. Therefore shall our hearts dance for joy And in our song, we will praise our God. Amen.